and though I wasn't going to church, I was in a cult. Um, we, you know, it wasn't like we had weekly meetings and, and all of that kind of thing, but I can just tell you, by the age of 16, this cult had totally dominated my life. The, the God that I served in, in this cult had total preeminence in my life. This God was my first waking thought in the morning. It was my last thought as I closed out every single day. I was consumed with him. And this is going to sound weird, but the people that were in this, this cult, were, we carried with us at all times a, a mobile shrine, if you were, because we never knew when we would have the urge to worship this God. And I can tell you, there was no sacrifice that I was not willing to make to this God. It, it, this God was the secret motivation of every word that I spoke. It was the secret motivation behind every deed that I did. And I can tell you guys, I've been saved for 27 years now. And the God that I served before I came to Christ is something that I've got to reckon with every single day. And, and though I don't want to, I, I still find myself thinking about the God that I served. Sometimes I secretly seek to please him. And, and I'm telling you what's so pitiful about me is, is I find myself trying to give the appearance that I'm serving Jesus Christ while I'm in the very process of serving the God that I used to serve. And I know that that sounds devastating and, and, and strong. And, and some of you are probably thinking, how in the world did you ever get into something like that? And, and I, I'll tell you what, I got into it very naturally. I, I grew up in it. My parents were in it. And it just, it just kind of came with, with the territory. In fact, I, I, I grew up thinking that this was normal. And, and some of you probably wonder, what in the world, what, what cult is this? How many of you think you know the name of the cult I'm talking about? It's the cult of self. And you know what? Some of you probably smelled that from the beginning. And some of you probably are going, oh, he tricked us. No. And you see, that's, I, I think that's the real point that I want you to get here. Is that was not a trick. You, you know what? That was not an exaggeration of, of what it was. How many of you were involved in that cult before you got saved. You see, the truth is, all, all of us were in that thing. And, and, and listen, folks, this thing of, of loving ourselves, it, it is bigger than I think any of us can even I I imagine. And, and I think that the carryovers of, of this into our Christian life are, are there because we don't really understand the cult-like grip that self had on us. Now, if you won someone to Christ that was, you know, in, in the Jim Jones cult or in the David Koresh cult, you won them to Christ, man, you'd be coming in here, whew, 
Y'all pray for me. I'm starting to disciple somebody that was in a cult, you know. And, and you know what? If you're doing that, man, you, you'd come into that thing understanding that it is going to take a, a, a majorly, majorly intense reprogramming. You, you wouldn't take anything for granted. And what I'm trying to get you to see this morning is that self was so dominating on us. It was as dominating as Jim Jones and, and David Koresh would have been with, with their followers. And I'm just telling you, unless there is some majorly intense reprogramming, chances are real good. We're going to wake up one of these days to find out that we have been serving the God of self in the name of Jesus and under the guise of Christianity. And what makes this thing so, so difficult? You know, if it's Jim Jones and if it's David Koresh, man, it's right out there in front. You, you know it. But the self thing is a little more subtle, isn't it? And we don't think that, that it's that, that big of a deal. And, and, and what, what it does is it ends up slapping us because we don't really understand that. Now, if you're a guest with us today, we're in Revelation chapter 14, believe it or not. We're talking about the 144,000, and you're probably thinking, what in the world does that have to do with anything here? Well, what we've been doing as we came to Revelation chapter 14, and we've seen this incredible group, this group referred to as 144,000. We saw them back in Revelation chapter 7 there. 12,000 Jews from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. They will come to Christ shortly after the rapture. They will be God's sealed servants to carry his message to the uttermost parts of the earth. Every kindred, tongue, tribe, and people is going to be able to hear the gospel because of this group. And what we've been doing is we've gone to Revelation chapter 14, covered the theology and the doctrine and all of that, and what we've been trying to do is try to learn some lessons from this group of people, because when it's all said and done, the group of people that in all times will have done the thing right is, is this group of 144,000. And so we're talking about the fact from Revelation chapter 3 that we are that generation that is referred to as Laodiceans. It's those of us that are living in these last days, and we've been trying to get some Laodicean lessons from the Lamb's 144,000. You can see on your study sheet there that there is visible evidence of this 144,000, of their identification with the Lamb and His Father. And we've tried to learn from that because what we uh, understand is that every person in every age, God wants it to be visibly evident who they are. And what we see is with this 144,000, their identification with the Lamb and His Father is made evident, first of all, by the seal that they have in their foreheads. That's in verse 1 here of chapter 14. His name is visibly written on their foreheads. And we see it also down in verse 4 in the middle of the verse. We see it by their submission. The middle of verse 4 says, They follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. So listen, you couldn't miss their identification if you were blind as a bat, man, because they've got it written on their foreheads, and everywhere the Lamb is, that's where they are, and it's visibly evident about their identification. And what we began to see is that though we are not the 144,000 and we're in a different dispensation, that in this dispensation, God also has a seal for all of his serp uh, servants. Hmm, most of the time we are like serpents, but... 
God has a seal for, for those of us in this age. Frank was talking about it just a minute ago. It's the seal of the Spirit. And when we have been sealed with the Spirit of God, you know what? It becomes visibly evident that we have made our identification with the Lamb and His Father because He writes it not with ink on us, but He writes it in our lives. And we also saw that it's visibly evident that we are identified with the Father by our submission. And what we began to look into is that Jesus' invitation to us was to follow Him. We began to talk about the implications of that. Jesus said, now listen to it, My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Okay? My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Now, if you don't hear His voice and you don't follow Him, then you might conclude that you're not a what? You're not a sheep, okay? And, and the deal is, Jesus is saying, all oh, my sheep, they hear my voice, and you'll know them because they're just following right, right behind. They follow me. And we began to, to look at this thing uh, of what it means to follow. And this is, this is what opened up just a whole Pandora's box that I don't know when we'll ever get out of because, man, it just keeps going and going and going, and we've got until the rapture anyway, so we might as well work it, right? Okay. But if we're going to talk about this thing of following the Lamb whithersoever He goeth, we've talked about the fact it's important that we understand that it's not, it doesn't make any difference what I think it means to follow the Lamb. It really doesn't make any difference what you think it means to follow the Lamb or what this church says it means to follow the Lamb or what any church says it means to follow the Lamb. We better find out what does God say it means to follow. And we begin to look, first of all, at the presuppositions of following. The presuppositions of following. And we saw that there are at least two of them. Number one, following presumes what? Change. If you're being asked to follow him, that means he's not standing still. He's moving. He's moving to accomplish his plan for the universe, the earth, and your life. And he's moving. And so he says, now listen, I'm inviting you to follow me. He's going somewhere. And the, 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 this very simple but profound point is this. I can't stay where I am and follow him at the same time. I, if I'm going to follow him, I am resigning myself to a life of change. And then we saw number two, following presumes submission. Following means that I'm no longer leading. I was going my way. Now I'm no longer leading in that thing. I'm going your way. I'm following. So those are the, the presuppositions of following. Now this morning I want us to look at the, the second thing about what it means biblically to follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. And we'll look at the prerequisites of following. The prerequisites of following. And for all of you that don't know how to spell very well, here it goes. P-R-E R-E-Q I-S uh, I'm sorry. U-I-S <laughs> I-T-E-S, P-R-E-R-E-Q-U-I-S-I-T-E-S. And if you can get it after I butchered that, then not only are you a good speller, you're, you're pretty smart. All right, let, let me take you back to Mark chapter 8 for just a second and show you this. Mark chapter 8. Now, in, in this chapter, in verses 27 to 31, our Lord has been having a, a very, very important conversation with his disciples about about who he really was and what it was that he had actually come to this planet to do 
And, and they affirm their understanding in this passage uh, of the fact that he was the Christ. In other words, they understood that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the fact that God would come to this planet in the form of a human body. And they were saying, we believe that thou art the Christ. And then once they, they affirmed who he was, he, he then begins to make sure that they understood why he came. In verse 31 it says, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Okay, now I, I want to make sure that you understand that this is a very, very significant moment in Jesus' ministry. I mean, listen, the things that, are, that he's talking about in this passage, these, this is the whole essence of, the, of our faith. The fact that Jesus Christ is God in human flesh who came to this earth in a human body to die for our sins and then be raised again the third day. Now listen, that's the essence of Christianity. And now watch this. Off of the heels of this incredible teaching, I want you to see the invitation that our Lord offers in verse 34. Okay, now here's who I am. I am the Christ. I am God here is what I've come to this planet to do. I've come to die for sin and be raised the third day. Now watch the invitation, verse 34. And when he had called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, there's a couple of observations I want us to make about what Jesus is actually doing and what he's actually saying here. I want you to notice that Jesus is making here an evangelistic invitation. He is making in an evangelistic invitation here. He says in the middle of verse 34, look at it, whosoever will come after me. It would be the, the equivalent of us saying, uh, if there's anybody here this morning that would like to become a Christian, or if there's anybody here this morning that would like to, to come uh, to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, if, if whosoever will come unto me, Jesus is saying. Again, it's an evangelistic invitation. And notice at the end of the verse that the real intent of the invitation is to gain what? Followers. You see, and that's the point that I've been trying to get you to see the past couple of weeks, that, that our Lord wasn't just seeking to get a band of people that he could cart off to heaven when they croak. He, he was looking for people to be his followers. He, he was looking for people to be his disciples, if you will. We've talked over and over about Isaiah 53 and verse 6, where it says that we have all turned to our own way and Jesus is saying here okay now that's the way that you're going now if you want to come after me if you want to follow me here's what it's going to mean and he gives us two prerequisites he says if you're going to come after me and and follow me first of all you're going to have to deny yourself you must deny yourself now that's as far as we're going to 
get this morning, but you can see the second prerequisite listed there. You're also going to have to take up your cross. You must take up your cross. But I, I want you to, I want to see you this morning if we can just begin to talk about what's up with this thing of Jesus saying that his followers must do if they're going to follow this thing of denying yourself. Now, I know that I mentioned this verse an awful lot, but I want you to turn to it again anyway. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I don't think we can get too far away from this as Laodiceans. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Now, I want to make sure that, that you hear this. There's never been a time when it's been easy to be a follower of Jesus Christ. That's never been an easy thing. I mean, in light of the prerequisites that we just saw that Jesus mentioned, it's always been an incredibly difficult thing. But in light of what it says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, listen, being a genuine follower of Jesus Christ in the time in which you and I live, it is 10 trillion times more difficult than I believe that it's ever been. Because God tells us through the Apostle Paul in verse 1, this know also that in the last days, okay, th those are the days that you and I are living in, this know also, make sure you know this, that in the last days perilous times shall come. And he goes on to list at least 20 different reasons uh, that would make these times so incredibly perilous and first and foremost above every other reason. Verse 2 says that they'll be perilous for this reason, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. And this is what I was talking about at the beginning this morning. There is going to be a major self-cult that is going to permeate the planet in the last days. You see, I, I don't think we really understand just how sold out and surrendered this generation is to self. I don't think we, we really understand what God's trying to get us to see. Look in, in verse 2 when he says that we are lovers of our own selves. But folks, listen, what he's trying to get us to see is that this self thing is something that is ingrained in us. Listen. What he's saying, and I, I know this is obvious, but it's so obvious we don't get it. He, he's, he's saying here, we don't just like ourselves. We're not just real fond of ourselves. We're, we're, we don't just, you know, think self is, is nice to have around. What, what he says here is we love ourselves. And, and you see, here, here we are. We're consumed with ourselves. We're preoccupied with ourselves. We're sold out to ourselves. We're slaves to ourselves. We're lovers of our own selves. And then Jesus comes along and he says, Okay, now I want you to follow me. And, and, and you see, because in these last days, that invitation that Jesus gave to follow him has been reinterpreted. And, and you've got to understand that that's what's, what's happening 
is the, the invitation to follow Jesus has been reinterpreted in these perilous last days into, are, are you looking for peace in your life? Or are you looking for meaning in life? Are you looking for joy? W would you like to go to heaven when you die? And, and you see, when a generation of people is preoccupied with themselves and we're consumed with ourselves and we're lovers of our own selves and we hear an invitation like that hey sure man i'll follow him and, and grab his peace and, and his purpose and, and heaven and you see what what's happened to us is we've interpreted the invitation of jesus to follow him as something that we do to to get and listen Man, coming to, to Christ is to get a, a whole lot of stuff, man. I mean, I, I highly recommend it. It, it, it. it changed my life. But listen, Jesus said, those who get are those who follow. And the first prerequisite of following is denying yourself. You don't come into this thing to get. You come into this thing to die. Now, I know that it doesn't take a nuclear physicist to figure out that loving your own self and denying yourself are mutually exclusive. Now, for those of you that are in junior high, what that means is you can't do both of those at the same time. You cannot love yourself and deny yourself at the same time, that is, unless you're a Laodicean. You see, and then you can. At least that's what we convince ourselves in our mind. We convince ourselves we're followers of Jesus when we've never really learned what Jesus was talking about when he said that all of his followers must first deny themselves. You say, well, well what does it mean? to deny yourself. Well, first of all, denying yourself means I no longer trust in myself. I no longer trust in myself. It's, it's coming to the place where you deny that you have the capacity to save yourself or that you on your own have the ability to be what God wants you to be or really that you have within yourself the ability to do anything good at all. You, you've got to deny that. In order to come to Christ, you've got to affirm the, the truth of Romans chapter 7 and verse 18 that in yourself, that is in your flesh, dwelleth what? No good thing. You see, denying yourself means that you relinquish all hope whatsoever, that you have the ability to please God in your flesh. In Philippians chapter 3, Paul is beginning to lay out his testimony, and I want you to listen to what he said in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 3. He says, for we are the circumcision, listen to it now, which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus, listen now, and have no confidence 
in the flesh. And, and from there, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul goes on and he says that if there's ever been anybody that ever could have had the ability to have had confidence in their flesh, then it would have been him. And what he does is he lists all of the things that he had been trusting before he came to Christ, all the things that before he came to know the Lord Jesus Christ that he would have put in his asset column, all the things that he would have looked at in his life and said, here's the reason that I ought to be accepted before God. Here's all the, the good things in my life. And he comes through the list of all that whole thing and he says in verse 7, listen, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ and he goes on in the very next verse to say that not only did he count them lost he said I count them but what's the next word dung and if you want to know what the Greek word means there look it up <laughs> listen there was a point in Paul's life where he was trusting himself he was trusting who he was and what he was doing. And he finally got to the point to where he understood that these things were not things in his asset column. These were the things going against him. And he says, you know what? I got to the place to where I didn't just count them as lost. I counted them as that big pile of smelly stuff that you don't want to step in. You know why he came to the place where they were dung to him? Listen, because those were the things that almost sent him to hell. Those were the things that he was trusting in. And you see, that's what it means to deny yourself. It's to have absolutely no trust whatsoever in your ability to save yourself. And you see, that's the way that we all come to Christ. I don't know who you are this morning. don't know how you got here. I'm glad that you're here. But now listen. You are incapable of doing anything to save yourself. And before you can ever follow Jesus, you've got to come to the place where you admit that, which means you deny yourself. That's the way we all get in, no longer trusting in ourselves. But once we come to that place, the self-denial continues in a second way and takes on a second meaning, and that is denying yourself means I no longer live for myself, or in other words, I no longer, what, love myself. In Mark chapter 12, a man comes to Jesus and he says, uh, uh, yeah, there, uh, Master, I was wondering if you could just do me a little favor. I wonder if you could just break this thing down for me and just bring the whole schmeal to the bottom line. Would you do that? Sure, what's up? He says, well, what, what is it that God's really looking for anyway? And Jesus says, all right, here it is. God wants you to love him. And he qualifies it. God wants you to love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And, and now listen, this, this really shouldn't be as tough to understand as it is for us Laodiceans. But it's tough. The simple fact is, folks, I can't love God with all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my mind and all of my strength 
and still love my own self. And so you see, denying self means I no longer love myself. And, and now listen. Salvation was supposed to settle this issue. Okay, and, and if, if you've been drifting, you need to come back in right, right now. Listen. Salvation was supposed to settle this issue of us loving ourselves. The, the self-cult was supposed to be destroyed because of salvation. And I want to show you this. This is not my opinion. I'm just telling you. That's what the book says, y'all. And, and, and turn back with me to the book of 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5, look at verse 14. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. You see, that's why we couldn't do anything in our flesh to save ourselves. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, we were dead in trespasses and sins. Romans 5, 12, we were dead spiritually. We were incapable of doing anything to bring our dead spirit to life. And we were, listen to it, we were all in that boat. We were all dead. And so verse 15, Christ died for all that they which live, okay, now that's those of us that have been born again. That's those whose dead spirits have been brought to life. Listen, here is the result of the death of Christ. Here's what it was supposed to do, that we would, should not henceforth live unto themselves or ourselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. You know what he's saying here, y'all? He's saying, hey... Don't you realize that the reason that Christ died was so that we could cease living for ourselves? I mean, don't you understand the issue? All were dead, so Christ died for all so that we would stop living for ourselves. See, this is what Paul was saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Go back there. Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 6 and, and verse 19, What? Know ye not? He, he's, he's, come on, y'all. What is up? Don't you know that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own? Yeah, you see, spiritual death resided in your body before you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ and listen in a moment's time you called upon his name and you know what God did he made your body his temple and his spirit took up residence in your dead spirit and he brought it to life so he says listen don't you understand that that means you're no longer your own I mean isn't that just perfectly clear verse 20 for you're bought with a price and there it is again it's what's the price y'all it's the death of Christ he said that's what it costs God to buy your redemption off of the same the slave block of sin that's what it cost God to purchase your redemption off of the same uh, the, uh, 
the slave block of self. He died. It cost him the precious blood of his only begotten son. And he says, you're his now, therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. He's saying, this isn't tough. He died to give us salvation, but he died so that we cease living for self. He shed his precious blood so that he could make our body his temple so that we would no longer be our own. And turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 18. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter says, verse 18, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold. And if you drop down to verse 19, he tells you the commodity that God used to redeem us. He says, it was not only the blood of Christ, but what? Precious blood of Christ. The reason it was so precious is it's the only thing that could redeem you. All the silver in the world couldn't do it. You ain't going to come to God with all the silver and gold said, tell you what, can I buy entrance with this? He said, you know, we paid the streets with that stuff here. It, this really doesn't float my boat. But, oh, buddy, there's something precious about that blood. It's, it's rare, and it's the only thing that, that can redeem us. He says, what redeemed us wasn't silver or gold. It was the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. But, but look at what the middle of verse 18 says. That that precious blood redeemed us from, y'all. Don't miss it now. He says, we were redeemed from our vain conversation received by tradition from our fathers or our, our parents, our, our forefathers, and, and our vain conversation was that old manner of life that had me at the center. It was that old way of life that saw life revolving around me, that saw what was in everything for me. And he says, listen, do you realize that the precious blood of God was shed to redeem you from that vain kind of life that you used to live before you got saved when you lived for your own dirty, stinking, reeking, rotten, royal self. Wish I could get another, more, another adjective in there with that thing. Don't you see that? He was redeeming you from a, a type of life. A life that had us at the center of that vain conversation. That self-cult, salvation, the blood of Christ, the death of Christ, anywhere you slice it. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Peter 1, it's all saying the same thing. This was to redeem us out of this self-cult. And Paul comes along in, in Romans chapter 6 and verse 2 and he says, God forbid! Hard to get any stronger than that, y'all. What's he going to say? 
God forbid that we that are dead to sin, God forbid that we would live any longer therein. I mean, God forbid that that would ever happen. And I'm just afraid that in these Laodicean days that we're living in, that living for self and living for sin and loving self is more the rule among professing believers than it is the exception. I don't want to take too long to work this, but for those of you that may be newer to our church, in Revelation 2 and 3, the seven letters to the seven churches, real churches, Asia Minor, about 95 A.D., but also represent seven periods of church history. And every one of the names of those churches is God's one-word capsulization of his view of Christianity as he saw it from his vantage point all through history. We're living in the seventh period of church history, the last one. The word that capsulizes us is Laodicea. You know what it means? Say it, the rights of the people. Men shall be lovers of their own selves. Does anybody doubt whether or not Laodicea is the one word capsulization of Christianity in this day? And you see, what really concerns me about all that is just how far we must be from the believers in Paul's day. You, you tracking with me on that? I mean, we're followers of Jesus. We got this self thing. It still haunts us, doesn't it? And how, how far must we be from what believers were in Paul's time? And the reason I'm making that point is I want you to see something that Paul said that scares me to death. It trips me out. In Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> I, 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 would we agree that other than the Lord Jesus Christ, nobody's ever been used in the capacity the Apostle Paul has been used? W would we agree that other than the Lord Jesus Christ, there was never a better discipler than the Apostle Paul. He said that he was a wise master builder in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Wise master builder of people. Hang on to this now. Paul says in verse 19 of chapter 2, Philippians, but, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timotheus shortly unto you that I also may be of good comfort when I know your state. Man, I'm, you know, I'm kind of wanting to know what's going on with y'all and so man what I want to do is I want to send Timothy so that he can find out and come back and tell me that you guys are doing all right and I'm gonna be settled in this okay now if you want to know why he wants to send Timotheus if you, you want to know why he wants to send Timothy he tells you in the very next verse for I have no man like-minded who will naturally care for your state and, and listen if we didn't have verse 21 then we might conclude that there was you know just some kind of special bond or some special connection that Timothy would have with the Philippians that other people wouldn't just naturally have but now listen verse 21 squelches that verse 27 says 
for, count them, all seek what? Their own. Not the things which are Jesus Christ. In other words, okay? In other words, you know, I might consider sending someone else, but but I don't know who I'd send. Because everyone else is still living for themselves. They still love themselves. They still live a vain conversation. They still think they're their own. They all seek their own. This isn't Laodicea. This isn't chump disciple Mark Trotter. This is Apostle Paul. Now, now let me ask you, if, if Paul looked around at the, the, the people that were with him there at that time and said they all still seek their own, with the life that you live right now, that you've been living for the last year, if somehow God would have just been able to be able to catapult you backward in time to be here with Paul as he's writing this and he's looking around, would Paul have considered sending you? Or would you be one of the number that he's talking about here that seek their own? Now, now, now listen. What is it? What is it that you actually seek? Now listen to what I'm asking. In, in your heart of hearts, what is it that you really want? What is it that you really desire? Is it, what he says, is it the things which are Jesus Christ? And now listen to, I'm asking you about what you desire. I'm not asking you so, so much right now about what you do. I'm not asking you, what do you do? I'm, I'm asking you about your desire. What do you desire? Because you see, the, the salvation that the Bible describes, y'all, that we've looked at this morning, the salvation that the Bible describes isn't just behavior modification. And listen, I'm afraid that that's what Laodiceans, for the most part, have gotten. You see, salvation didn't simply supply you with the ability to suppress your sinful desires. When God saved you, listen now, God didn't just give you a, a major dose of self-control so that you stop doing all kinds of bad stuff. Uh, according to the verses that we read this morning, y'all, our salvation was the transformation of desire. You, you see, re receiving the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't simply something that God intended to change our eternal destiny. This salvation thing was to change the, our whole way of thinking. It was to change our whole lifestyle, our dreams, our goals, our pursuits, our aspirations, our desires, our attitudes, our whole reason for living, our whole purpose for, for being in, a, in existence. 
Now that we've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, this, what it was, it was the dethroning of self and the crucifying of self on the cross. And it was the enthroning of Christ in our lives where self used to be on the throne of our hearts and it's putting Christ there and now Christ sits on that throne and now we hang on that cross and yet I, I dare say that for many and we may could even go with most people who profess to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior listen their whole Christian life is really nothing more than suppressing the things that they really want to do, you know, all that bad stuff, and disciplining themselves to do the things they don't want to do, all the good stuff. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Did you catch that? Christian life, salvation wasn't just a matter of now, I've got to suppress all this stuff that I really inside still want to do, and I don't want to do all this, you know, reading the Bible and praying and all that stuff, but I'm saved, so I'm going to discipline myself. And yet, listen, we're, we're defining where most Christians live. Uh, you, you remember uh, in one of my favorite movies, in, in The Wizard of Oz, uh, you remember at the beginning of the movie, you know, when it's still black and white, and here's Elvira Gulch, you know, she's all hacked, you know, she's riding her bike, you know, and so, you know, she's coming, and boy, she's going to beat 90, and she's got that look on her face, and she's going to Dorothy's house, and she comes up outside the gate, and her uncle's, uh, Dorothy's uncle's out there. And Elvira walks up and says, I want to talk to you and your wife right away about Dorothy. He's got the, he's working the pipe. Dorothy? Well, what's Dorothy done? Well, I'm all but lame from this bite on my leg. Oh, you mean she bit you? No, her dog. Oh, she bit her dog, eh? You know, and so you go through this, this whole day thing, you know, and so she gets in the house, and I mean, she's just stomping mad, and she comes to Aunt M, you know? You know, Aunt M in the movie? She comes to Aunt M, and she is, you know, she, she's saying, I'm telling you, that dog just, I'm going to take that dog, and I'm going to take it, you know, and she's, and Aunt M, she's exasperated, man. And, you know, here's Elvira, and she's just working it in, in Aunt M's face, and finally, Aunt M says, oh, and you're loving it, you know. This is back when movies were movies now. She's going to get ready to tell her. She says, Elvira, don't you? For 35 years, I've been wanting to tell you what I think of you, and now, well, being a Christian woman, I can't say it. And you see, that's the way it is with most Christians. I've hated your stinking guts for 35 years. But because I'm a Christian, I'd never let you know that. And listen, I'll be very careful never to display that. I mean, what would you think of me as a Christian if I did? So listen, I'm going to do the Christian thing, and I'll just harbor this hate and resentment and bitterness on the inside like good Christians do. Listen, salvation was supposed to change the inside of us. 
go back to Matthew 25 for just a sec, or Matthew 23. And I want to remind you what Jesus said to the Pharisees in his day. Matthew 23, verse 25. He said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they're full of extortion or rottenness and excess. You know what excess is? Unbridled desire. You know what he's saying? Watch out now. For getting to the place where you got the outside looking all cool while the inside is full of all kinds of unbridled desires. Just tell those Pharisees. And and look at what he says two verses later, verse 27. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like unto whited sepulchers. A sepulcher is a a, a tomb. You know, they they put Jesus in the tomb. They rolled the stone over the thing. And what they would do back in those days is to make the thing look real cute, you know, is they take this whitewash and they put it all over the outside. So, man, you come by and it's just clean, looks, you know, nice and crisp and fresh and all of that. He he says, Woe, for you're like unto whited sepulchers, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. And folks, what what I'm trying to get you to see this morning is what Jesus is talking about here is not just a first century problem. Because there's many people who claim to be Christians in the last days of this 20th century who spend all of their time trying to appear to be spiritually beautiful on the outside and yet never allow the Lord Jesus Christ to change the inside. So, you see, so that it's not just a matter of not expressing the hate and the bitterness and the resentment. It's not there. And it's not just a matter of not carrying out the lustful thoughts. They're not there, man. And it's not just a matter of trying to mask the need to be noticed and appreciated and and admired and held in esteem and recognized. It's not there. I don't have to try to discipline myself when it comes to acquiring acquiring more and more of the things of this world and and ask myself, will people people think I'm not as spiritual if I drive that? Or will they think I'm not as spiritual as I live here? You see, I don't have to work through all of those things because I don't need any of those things to boost my ego anymore because I've denied myself and I no longer love myself and I don't have the drive for those things now. Listen. The point isn't, well, I'm saved now, so I'm going to suppress the desires that I have to do those things that are wrong. The point is, I'm saved now, and I don't have the desire to do those things that are wrong. The point isn't, well, I'm saved now, so I'll discipline myself to do all this right stuff. No, the denying self that brought us into our relation with Relationship with Christ should put 
the desires in us to do what is right. Are you hearing what I'm saying, y'all? I mean, just just so much of Christianity that has nothing to do with the Christianity of the Bible. Listen, isn't, isn't the transformation of salvation powerful enough to have changed our desires? I mean, wasn't making us new creatures and raising our dead spirits to life and and giving us, as Ezekiel 36, 26 says, a new heart? Wasn't that powerful enough to change the desires of our heart? I mean, isn't that what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 5, 17? Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I'm saying to you, y'all, please, let's, let's, as a church, let's just come to the place to where we understand that following Jesus Christ is not me suppressing all these sinful desires and trying to work up some energy to do these spiritual things I ought to be doing. That ought to just let us know right from the get-go, we ain't past the first prerequisite. We still love our dirty, stinking, reeking, rotten oil self. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Resist the urge to pack up, okay? He's walking out here. I I am. I I want you to be just straight up gut honest with yourself this morning. Is your Christianity suppression and discipline? Or is it freedom? Listen, walking in the Spirit. And not all of that. It's yielding. It's dying. And I've tried to take you everywhere I could this morning to show you that's what salvation is. Do you understand any better now what I was talking about at the beginning now, the self-cult? you got to watch it, man. Because you, you see, the way this thing works is we get into this, this, this Christian life thing and we get into the church after a little while and we start finding out that, you know what? This denying yourself thing is a great way to promote yourself. And so now we start finding all the ways to look like we deny ourselves because it's a great way for everyone to pat us on the back. And boy, man, I'll tell you, you really know how to bust the Word. We like to wow people with the Word of God. And and you know what? It ain't because we've got a passion for them to know the Word of God. It's because we've got a passion for them to think we know the Word of God. We want to find ways to let people know how long we pray because we like how they look at us when they think we pray. And I don't want to sound like a cynic, y'all. I'm just telling you, this is Laodicea. And, man, don't you want to be something other than a Laodicea? (laughs) 
I know this kind of stuff ain't fun. But man, I'd sure rather deal with this stuff now than wake up one day and find out that I really was serving self in the name of Jesus and have a big bonfire that goes on at the judgment seat of Christ when it comes to reward because the motivation for what I did wasn't him, it was me. If you're here this morning and you've never been saved, the God of the universe, man, loves you so much that he came to the planet to take your sin because you couldn't do anything but go to hell to pay for it. And he didn't want you to do that. So he said, I'll I'll take it. I'll purchase their redemption. And now he says, will you come after me? I want you to be one of my followers. What it means for you today is I no longer trust myself. I deny any ability that I think I might have to save myself. Doing the good works through my religion and all that, I deny all of that. I trust what Jesus did alone as my salvation. And boy, that invitation is out for you today, and we'd love to see you respond to it. And I will tell you that God of the universe will change your life. You're going to have, you'll have, you're getting saved out of the self-cult just like we are. It's not an easy road, I can tell you. But I'm telling you, it's the best road to be on. Our pastors will be up on either side as our service is concluded. It's our invitation to, to say, man, we'd love to talk to you about receiving Christ. And if God's speaking to your heart today about receiving Him, then man, as soon as we say amen this morning, why don't, why don't you get up and talk to one of our pastors? <clears throat> okay, but, but now listen, church. God's trying to confront us with self. Self is a monster, man. Self will let you discipline it. Self will let you rebuke it. Self will dress up real pretty. Self will shut up for a long period of time. You know what? It'll do just about anything other than what? Die. And that's what he's calling us to. So let's let him do what he wants to do. Amen. Now, Lord, please help us. Man, this is, at least in my boat, Lord, this is tough stuff. I I, I confess to you my sin of self and self-seeking and self-gratification and self-promotion. And we could go on and on and on. And I, I, I hate it. I pray that you would help me. I pray you would help all of the, the folks that are in this room that know you, Lord, bring us to the, the place of denying ourselves so that we can be like the 144,000 and follow the Lamb whithersoever you go. Lord, change us from the inside out. Change our desires. May we allow what you did when you saved us to have its completing work in us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.